No 15-year-old thinks that they're going to not have their home that night. Hey, hey, it's Ruthie Sullivan. Welcome to this week's episode of the Ruthie Podcast, where I interview everyday women to learn how they're making money, how they're showing up for life, and what's their story. I want to know how their successes, their failures, and their courage to get back up and continue on all play into where they're at and how they spend their time. Today, I'm interviewing Beth Young. She's an ICU nurse at a renowned hospital known and admired for their mobility care. Her perspective on her career after being on the front lines of the toughest year hospitals worldwide have ever seen is inspiring. Not only is Beth a nurse, she's in a leadership role in her department. She's climbed mountains personally and professionally to be where she is today. And check out the job she did in her past to make ends meet prior to being a nurse. Meet Beth. Thank you so much for being here, Beth. No problem. I'm excited to be here. I've heard wonderful things about you. So tell me a little bit about your job and what you do in the ICU. So I'm a charge nurse and uh, this year it's a COVID ICU. Um, The COVID numbers are down, but patient loads are up and we are busy, 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 and we cannot by a nurse to save our lives. You say that the COVID numbers are down, but the the load of work is up. Yeah, I think a lot of people have PTSD from the last year. They're tired. Um, the shifts have been so incredibly hard for over a year now. Um, there's not a lot of sitting around. Um, oftentimes, you don't know what's going on in anybody else's room because you're so busy. And coming out of COVID... We're seeing a lot of people, I think, who maybe neglected themselves over the last year. And so now they're kind of getting back to themselves and realizing that things have changed. They can't walk as far or whatever other issues they've got. And so they come in not with COVID, but they're sick. Mm. Like just a variety of of cases? Like what specifically are you treating right now? A lot of detox, um, a lot of kidney failure. Um... A lot of respiratory stuff, but not colds and flus, more of like COPD exacerbations, Mm. um, things that they deal with every day that maybe they didn't quite take care of over the last year, but they didn't want to go in for it. Because they don't want to catch COVID. They don't want to catch COVID. Yeah. They don't want to wear the mask in public. They just want to stay at home. (laughs) Yeah. Have you guys had training there at the hospital with how to deal with all of that, the the psychological aspect of things? I wish. Um, A lot of times we forget about ourselves. And so there hasn't been a lot of that kind of training. They're opening up EAP and stuff, but I don't think everybody's taking advantage. Uh What is that? Uh, Employee assistance program. So like a therapist. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we can go see them so many times a year, but I think they're probably packed too. Wow. Yeah. So when you were first, how long have you been an ICU nurse before I get onto that question? About six years now. Oh, wow. Okay. And how long have you been a nurse? About 10 years. Okay. So what was the first job as a nurse? You could be a lot of different kinds of nurse or specialize in different things. So I was an OR nurse before I was an ICU nurse. Okay. So it was a very, uh, interesting transition because all of those nursing skills from school that I had, I hadn't used in about four years. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, ICU is kind of its own, or the OR is kind of its own niche. Um, 
you don't need the lab skills and how to draw blood and that stuff. You're thinking further down the case, how to, you know, if something happens, how are you going to solve it? Or getting the right instruments in the room or positioning the patient so they don't get bed sores. So it was a very big jump. My dad's an OR nurse and I was an orderly in the OR. So it was a really easy transition for me. Um, I had to learn the paperwork and, you know, more of the nursing aspect of it, but it wasn't a foreign land. Gotcha. And when did you transition to being ICU or how did that transition come about? So there's always lots of things happening at the hospital and there's almost always shortages of nurses. We could almost always use more. And when I left the OR, they were doing hostile overtime so if there wasn't a nurse to relieve you, you didn't get to go home. Oh, wow. And so I was working 55 hours a week every week. Wow. It meant that my brand new baby, I saw her in the morning when I dropped her off at daycare, but when I picked her up at night, it was time for bed. And so I applied for other jobs. And the ICU up at LDS is a smaller ICU with high acuity. But the team there is amazing. I can't say enough good things. Um, they are just so welcoming and willing to teach that it was kind of information overload, but as smooth of a transition as it could be from OR to ICU. <laughs> nice. LDS is known, their ICU is known for being really awesome. It's got the mobility care and... Yeah, so we walk all of our intubated patients three times a day. And it's really gratifying to see patients come home or come in sick. But when they leave, they don't go to a care center very often because they didn't lose any of their muscle mass. They still got up and walked all the time. And so they go home and it's amazing. Yeah. The team at LDS works really hard to be able to do it. It's a lot of work, but it's so gratifying to see those patients do so well. Yeah, that's that's significant. It's huge. Yeah, I've heard. So Louise next door, her brother-in-law passed away of COVID in California. Mm -hmm. And when he was there at the hospital that he was at, you know, she was you know, accounting for a lot of the conversations that she'd had with the hospital and with her sister and, and niece. And I was there for a couple of them and she was pretty torn up about the way things were being handled in comparison to what they would be doing here. Well, I think more hospitals are doing mobility, but it's so easy to sedate an intubated patient and only turn them every two and clean them up that the transition to doing a mobility protocol and walking them the whole time they're there would be, it would be a rough transition. But we're lucky in the fact that we get a lot of new grads and they just don't know any different. And our nurses don't know any different. But a lot of the issues that patients face in other ICUs, our patients don't see them as much. They don't see as much PTSD, even if they can't say it out loud. Mm -hmm. And so you, you empower them in their care. If things don't go well, they can say, I'm done with this. And you know they're done because they've fought so hard to get there. Yeah. 
So I think it's empowering for the staff and for the patients and their families, and they can tell their families what they want. So nobody feels guilty. Mm-hmm. So in the communication, like predominantly, it's just you don't sedate them. Do you ever sedate them? So we typically, well, we sedate them to intubate them, to put that tube in their throat to help them breathe. Um, but after that, they wake up. And the first six hours are kind of rough as they adjust to that tube. But I'd say 98% of the patients do really well while intubated. So in the beginning, we have to restrain them so that they don't pull that tube out. Is it instinctual for them to just try and get it out? Yeah, because it's, it's something weird in your throat. You're not it's used boring, to that. Yeah. Um, and the pressures of how it, they breathe is a little bit different. But by the time most of them have been intubated overnight, they wake up the next morning and you can unrestrain a lot of them. Yeah. And, you know, they'll watch TV or they'll call and say, hey, I'm ready to get up to the chair. Okay. You know, they can yeah. spend almost the whole day in the chair. Yeah. And the chair is where they're sitting upright and they, <laughs> is that where they can put their feet in the, the pedals? Or yeah, the, they can the get the bikes bicycle. out if they're COVID patients because they can't go into the hallway. But if they're non-COVID patients, they get up and they go in the hallway. So it takes a team of at least two, but sometimes six or eight people. And we get them up and we walk 200 feet around the unit. And is that just one circle around? That's one circle around. And most patients do two circles at a time. So six circles a day. But, and then they're tuckered out and they're ready to sleep. Yeah, get those muscles going and then let them rest. And yeah. Recuperate. Yeah. And invigorate the, the rest of the healing, right? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really cool. Okay, so when you left the OR and you decided to do ICU, it, it was because of the reputation of the ICU that you wanted to go there? You know, I think I've always wanted to be an ICU nurse. Um, I come from a family of nurses and doctors, and it was something that I'd always wanted to do. I didn't quite understand what I was getting into when I became a nurse at LDS Hospital, but I don't think I'd change it for the world. <laughs> really cool. And when you say you don't know, like you didn't know what you were getting into, meaning all the work? All the work. It is hard work. So getting patients up, you know, some patients may come in and they might have not walked in a few weeks. And so getting their strength back is huge or just keeping it there. You know, when you're sick, you don't want to get up and do a lot. Mm-hmm. And these patients are sick. If you've got a tube in to help you breathe, you're sick. And so, you know, having their family help us motivate them to get out of bed or, you know, all the muscle work, lifting patients every two hours to turn them if they can't move on their own. It's hard work. <laughs> you come home exhausted. Physically and emotionally. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine as a nurse that that's one of the taxing things is it is emotional. And why is it emotional for you specifically? Because I think you want, you know how things can go, good and bad. And you just want to get them home to their family and you want to get them home in a way that they'll succeed. If they want to go home and ride horses, that's what I want them to do. And if they're not going to achieve that, that, you know, did I do my job? Yeah. So you want to give them back the quality of life they had prior to coming to us. Oh, I love that. 
I think Louise was saying, didn't you guys have a patient there that had COVID for a number of weeks and then he sent a picture from the ski slopes? He did. He is <laughs> phenomenal. And he worked hard to get there. Yeah. When you chose nursing, why did you choose nursing? I know you said your family was in it a lot, but was there like undercurrent, like, yeah, your family does it, but what's, what do you get from it, I guess? What do you get from nursing? You know, I think I've always wanted to help people. It, I'm genuinely a helper. I, you know, I do that in the neighborhood. We take dinner to the lady across the street three or four times a week and have for years. It's just kind of in my DNA. And so I always knew that I was going into the medical field. It was just what part of it I was going into. Yeah. Do you have a leadership role? I do have a leadership role. When you say you're a charge nurse, was that? No. So the hospital system I work for has created leadership teams within each of the units. I'm the leadership person. So I do a lot of stuff in the background. So looking at budgets and helping with schedules. Um, And if a patient has something that goes wrong and they complain, you know, going back through and digging through charts and seeing why. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do with that once you've analyzed a complaint? It totally depends on what's happening. So if you have a problem with a specific nurse and you've got to approach them, how do you typically go about it? Um, so as a personal preference, I like to step back a little bit and cool off. I don't do as good with head-on confrontation. So I usually wait a day or two. And usually I bring up the issue and then see if they'll start the conversation from there. That way they feel heard. Yeah. I don't know that's that's uh-huh. the right answer, but... Well, I, I mean, you know, you, I bet over time you kind of figure out what works really well. Mm-hmm. When you have a patient come in, how do you approach them and get to know them, you know, express, you know, your desire to help, your desire to be there? Well, I call everybody friend. And I do that for two reasons. It makes people feel safe. But it's also because I have trouble remembering patients when they're, you could go through so many patients every shift, every week. So everybody's friend. And I tend to break things down into small chunks of information and try and use terms that everybody understands. So if there's something changing with blood pressure, we talk about it and we look at, well, you look at a blood pressure of 120 over 80. I'm looking at a map, which is a middle ground between those two numbers. And this is what we're trying to achieve with that number. And I think you have to realize that most people need that information three or four times before it begins to make sense Mm -hmm. because either they're sick or their loved one's sick and things are changing fast. So I often tell them, you know, I'm going to explain it to you multiple times. You know, if, if it gets to be too much, let me know. But I think, you know, each time you'll gain a little bit more information about what's going on. So you kind of explain that they're going to be explained to you multiple times. Yeah, because I think it's true. It's kind of like information overload in the ICU. The monitors are beeping and the nurse is in and out and the techs in and out and the doctor's in and out and the patient just falls asleep and we're like, hey, I need this lab. And so there's just so much going on that you're not going to get all of the information at once. Yeah. And you're not going to understand it all at once because for most people... It's new information. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Plus, you're so loaded with emotion in a lot of these cases that you're just trying to make sense of that. And then you're getting all this information coming at you. And It's an interesting balancing act. Yeah, I would say so. Louise has mentioned what an art it is. It and, is. Know, how she's grown in learning to deal with clients over the years. I keep calling them clients. Patience. Patience. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so tell me, what are some of your past jobs? Past ways to make money. Past. So I have an interesting history with that. My first job out, well, when I was still in high school, was cleaning speculums in an OB office. Whoa. What, what, what's a speculum? It's the part that you what? use during a vaginal exam that opens the vagina oh. up so they can see inside. <laughs> what a job. Jeesh. But I needed money and it was a good job. So every day I would catch the bus from the high school over to St. Mark's Hospital and I would clean speculums and I would file for the doctor and do a few hours. And it was good steady work. It was not something I would have ever thought that I wanted to do and I never want to do it again. But it was a good intro to the medical field. From there, I was lucky enough to get a job helping women check or pick out wedding dresses. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Both two jobs I wouldn't, you know, if I was making a list of all the things I could think about as a as a job, I don't know that I would list those. And they were not jobs I would have picked, but they kind of picked me. Um, I am, for a better word, a tomboy. I would cry growing up wearing dresses. I... I don't own dresses, even now as an adult. It is not me. It will never be me. But I was really good at selling them <laughs> and helping women find that perfect dress for them. And I built a lot of muscles doing it because it they're heavy. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like being a nurse in the sense that you're trying to manage everybody's emotions. You know, the bride's emotions, her mom's emotions, mother-in-law, whoever's there and trying to get a read on the room and give everyone an experience that they feel okay with. Um, I'll never sell wedding dresses again. <laughs> Been there, done that, huh? <laughs> yeah. what, made, what made you so good at it? If you hate dresses, why did you like selling them and why did people work well with you? I think... I care. I want you to have the wedding dress you want, even though I really don't care what wedding dress you want. You know, but I want you to have the experience you want, which is the same with nursing. I want mm -hmm. you to have a good experience. And there were a couple of ladies that worked there and then the manager. And on any given day, I could sell just as many as she, the manager did in a chunk of time. So it was an interesting job. You know, <laughs> did a bunch of ironing with it, but it paid the bills uh -huh. and it paid for the gas. I don't know. Right. <laughs> it helped you make ends meet. It did. <laughs> How long did you do that? Uh, probably a couple of years before okay. I became an orderly at the hospital. Okay. So tell me about your upbringing. So you were born in Idaho and then you moved here to Utah when you were three. And I'm assuming that was with your family. Yeah, we moved down here because my mom needed mental health services that we couldn't get in Utah or in Idaho. And so we moved down here pretty much for that. 
my dad's job transferred, but um, she had problems with manic depression, bipolar. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the root of the reason why we moved. I mean, I don't remember a whole lot from that time. You were three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so how many siblings were there? There's just the two of us, me and oh. a little brother. Okay. And so tell me more about that. You moved here. Did your mom get the help she needed then? You know, she tried. Um, she ended up hospitalized um, at the mental health facility those are some of my first memories is going to see her there. Um, she struggled really bad. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of new treatments for manic depression, bipolar, but she absolutely refused to take lithium, which was probably her best option. And because of that, she never really got it under control. Mm-hmm. Um, when we moved up to Salt Lake her and my dad would do kind of a dance where he'd move in and things would be okay and then they'd fight and he'd move out. And it kind of ebbed and flowed with her, how manic she was or depressed she was. So when she was really manic, did they get back together? Or was it when she was really depressed? I think it was more of when she was depressed. Um It was interesting because when she was manic, the house was spotless and we had amazing birthday parties. I mean, she could whip up a cake and all of the things that go with a birthday party, but it didn't last long. Mm -hmm. And then when she was depressed, she would spend a lot of time in bed. Yeah. And so it, you know, if my dad wasn't there, then I was kind of in charge. And how, so were you in charge of you and your brother, mm-hmm. you and the ho- your brother in the house? Like what was your, when you say you were in charge, what were you in charge of? You know, if dinner needed to be made or, you know, uh, everything. Did he need to get his homework done? Did I need to get my homework done? Did I need to figure out a way to get to soccer practice? You know, a lot of that stuff where parents arrange it, I don't know that we always had that. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't know. I, I grew up really fast. Yeah. It sounds like you would. So there was a lot of turmoil. Wow. What, how, how much older are you than your brother? Almost three years. Okay. So you're still, you're pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah. Like two back-to-back siblings would be. When I was 15, my dad was gone for the moment. And my mom told me that I had five minutes to get out of the house. And she told me I could take him with me or leave him for my little brother. She didn't care, but I had five minutes to pack my stuff and get out. Minutes to pack for two of us. And we had to pack backpacks and we had to pack clothes. And I remember telling him that he needed to get five pairs of underwear and five pairs of socks because we needed enough for a whole week. And we literally left that day with what we could fit in our backpacks. We got lucky. We, there was a a family that I'd babysat for a couple of times and we literally showed up on their doorstep. And we showed up on their doorstep because I figured they wouldn't turn us away. And he had 
been divorced and remarried, so he had a wife that I'd never met. And we literally showed up on their doorstep with our backpacks. And they were amazing. They went through everything the state required and my dad required. And they let us live there for two years. Wow. They literally went through all the hoops to keep us. And she literally packed us a lunch every morning with a fresh sandwich and a fresh cookie. Did you have communication with your mom during this time? When we moved in with Scott and Di, she called the cops and told them that I had kidnapped my little brother. I mean, I hadn't kidnapped him. I knew where he was. My dad knew who he was, but they believed her and they showed up at the high school and dragged me out of class. And that was kind of the turning point for me. I was never going back. I don't, I think the problem with manic depression, bipolar, at least in her instance, was she wasn't lying when she told the story. She maybe didn't. She didn't tell the truth, but it wasn't a lie. She genuinely thought that I took him for no reason. She genuinely thought that I was withholding him. And it wasn't my place to do it. And maybe it wasn't. But the stories that she would tell the cops when she called them were believable. They believed her. And... When they showed up at the high school that day, they they didn't believe me when I said he was at school. But he was. I'd helped him get there. And they just, I think we tend to not believe children over adults. I did see her once before she died. But other than maybe a one-off call because she was harassing my little brother, we never spoke. I never went by her place. I'd never been in her apartment until she died. The relationship that her and I had was so toxic that it took a long time to get out. One, I think that anytime we're in a situation where things are so toxic, getting out scary yeah. because it's the unknown. And when we left, it was hard. It, there was so much unknown where we were going to sleep that night or where we were going to end up if they were going to make us go back. But getting out and finding people to be surrounded with that helped us be successful, I think... You know, in the beginning, it was Scott and Di are the reason that my brother and I are fully functioning adults. <laughs> you yeah. know, I don't think I don't think either of us would be here if that's where we'd stayed. Oh, really? No, I think that you expend so much energy just trying to survive that you you can't be great and to be. Yeah, I don't think I could have done nursing school if I had had to deal with all of the family dynamic too. 
So it was positive that you ended up out. It was. I mean, it didn't feel that way at the time. Um, I think. Did you feel like you were a victim? I don't know that I ever thought of it as a victim. I think it was just reality. And I think that anyone can hit a breaking point and say, I'm not doing this anymore. It just depends on what that breaking point is. Mm -hmm. But I think that anyone who goes through a divorce or leaves a toxic relationship or leaves a toxic job can they're giving themselves the chance to succeed and you may not have been able to do that where you were did you kind of feel like it was leading up to that like does it surprise you when your mom kicked you out I don't know that it surprised me, but I think that no 15-year-old thinks that they're going to not have their home that night. You know, it, there's something to be said for consistency, even if the consistency is not safe. And mm -hmm. whether she realized it or not, she gave me the out. I don't think that she was a bad person, but I think that she was stuck in a loop that she couldn't get out of. Yeah. And we were there too. We didn't have to be. But I also think that there's a reason that my dad didn't leave and take us with him because it's hard. And sometimes you just stay with what you know. You mean like you don't know why he didn't just break the marriage, take you guys yeah. and just create something solid? Well, and I think that he didn't realize how bad it was when he was gone particularly. Well, and I think kind of what you're, you've been saying is sometimes I think we get addicted to the safety of the known dysfunction. Yes. <laughs> you know, like going and seeking something new, even something that's seemingly less toxic, more healthy, you know, by definition of what we define that way, it's it's feels unsafe because it's so unfamiliar and and thus some of these loops probably with herself, with you guys, all of it. When I think a lot of women in particular run into that, we are in toxic relationships where we know we probably shouldn't stay. But for whatever reason, we stay because at least you know the bad. Yeah. You know what to expect, even if that thing is not good at all. And you know it's not good for you. And I do think that's why my dad stayed. How did Scott and I impact you guys? They took you in, but was there a way about the way they lived, the way they interacted with you that was helpful to you? There was something safe in them. I mean, who packs somebody a sandwich and a cookie every day? You know, like they literally, they literally took two children in that for the most part, they didn't know. And they had three children between the two of them and they'd both been through divorces. I'm not sure that their lives were easy and then they just took two children in who were emotionally scarred. <laughs> I mean, 
I don't think my brother and I were bad, but I don't think we were easy. Yeah. How, who does that? <laughs> Scott and I do. Scott and I do. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. it's just, who does that? It's so cool. It really, that's really neat. So do you still <laughs> stay in touch with Scott and Day? Yeah. So my middle child actually has Scott as her middle name. Oh, cool. And they live in California now, but when they fly home to see their kids, their biological children, they come and see us too. How how has the way you were raised impacted the way you raise your children? Like to set firm boundaries. So we let our eight-year-old have a lot of freedom that maybe other eight-year-olds don't have. Um her elementary school freaked out when she was in first grade. And I was like, she's going to walk home from school. And they were like, what do you mean she's walking home by herself? <laughs> and I was like, A, she can do it. B, she has a phone and neighbors that love her to death. And if she messes it up, we won't do it again. But she can do this. So I like to empower them to do things they are not sure they can do. I think we roll with it more than my parents did. Yeah. Um, and when you say roll, just kind of let them explore and experience. And yeah. Experiment. With experiment. Um, we don't force them to eat food they don't want to do. And consequently, I have one really picky eater and one child that will eat anything. Maybe we cater to them too much. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Or pick your battles, right? Like... There's things and there's so many ways to live. Okay, so you're in touch with your dad now. Yeah. And do you see him pretty regularly? I don't know if regular is the right word. Um, the year of therapy helped a lot. Tremendously. What we found in therapy was that we were both afraid to make the wrong decision. And so therefore we didn't make a decision. Yeah. <laughs> and strangely, that is a decision. Yeah. But it, again, it's one of those loops yeah. that you can't get out of. So the therapist helped us see that if I was calling, I didn't need the right answer. I just needed an answer or the time. And we were able to talk about the things that triggered each of us. We've been able to put boundaries in and that if you know, stuff happens. We're just going to get up and leave. We're not mad. We can try again on a different day. Yeah, just give it some space. And yeah. It's helped with the communication is what it sounds like to me. Yeah. And I don't think either of us are as afraid to make a wrong decision. Yeah. So, and he gave us skills on just learning to talk. So... Sometimes it's just a five-minute conversation, and it doesn't have to be anything important. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be just how work went or whatever. But we've come a long way, and I think our girls are going to go to a different school next year. And I think two mornings a week, they're going to help take them to school while I'm at work. Oh, nice. Which would have never happened before. <laughs> that's great. You know, that's a big step. Yeah, I'd say so. So, but there's healthy boundaries now. Yeah, I like that. On both sides. Yeah, and you feel like you can create and 
create and discuss more boundaries or loosen boundaries. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's, it sounds again, like the conversation can happen about what's working, what's not working, what you want, what you don't want. I think it helped us realize that we each have boundaries, but it helped me set healthy boundaries of elsewhere and recognize that when I'm doing something, why I'm doing it. Nice. So has therapy, is this the first time you've gone to therapy or have you? Yes. How did that happen? How did I make it to adulthood without therapy? I think everybody <laughs> should do therapy. I agree. But, you know, I made it to adulthood and I didn't do therapy until I was well into my adult years. And when I finally went and I tried out different therapists, I want a male, female perspective, you know, yeah. it was life changing to me. Just some different perspective was was transformative and more efficient. I got to what I was looking yeah. for a little more efficiently. When I think that part of the trouble with therapy is finding the right therapist. Right. So the one that my dad and I went to was phenomenal. I would see that man every week and get something out of it. Hmm. But the skills I picked up in that year were phenomenal. I learned a lot, not just about the relationship that my dad and I had, but the relationship I had with other people and how to interact and how to set firm boundaries and be able to articulate why those boundaries were important to me. Nice. We're learning. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? (laughs) So knowing everything you've learned about yourself and about your ability to deal with things and what would have made things easier, you know, all the skills you've learned from therapy, everything. What would you tell someone who is in similar shoes to where you were? That you don't deserve what people give you. You make you make yourself. You know, it it's going to be hard, but if you can make it through, there's something better on the other side. There's a better relationship. There's, there's success. And you don't have to stay where you are. You can say no. It's okay to say no. Whether it's to a project or how someone's treating you. We teach them how to treat us. It's okay to say no. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So that brings me to this quote. Success isn't final. Failure isn't fatal. It's the courage to get up and continue that counts. And so I want to ask you about success, failure, and courage. I don't know. I don't think there is failure. I think you learn (laughs) something from everything. (laughs) I love it. It's true, though. You know, and I am far from perfect. And if raising kids has taught me nothing else, it's that there's always tomorrow. You know, if I made the wrong decision today, I can make a better decision tomorrow. That's really cool. (laughs) That's awesome. And what about courage? You know, I think think it takes courage to walk out the door every morning. I think that there's courage in everything we do, but sometimes it's the little things that set you up for success. Is it calling the therapist? I mean, calling the therapist is the easy part, and yet it's so hard, but it starts this momentum for success. You know, one small step, 
can take you someplace great. I love it. It is. You know, it's learning to ride a bike. I mean, it was pushing down the pedal. It sounds so easy, but that's scary. <laughs> it is so you know, scary. but it's so life. <laughs> it's so life. It is so life. <laughs> um, do you have a mindfulness practice? What do you mean? It's a broad, it can be broad or it can be really defined in what you want the definition of that to be. I mean, I don't know that I have a personal practice. I, I don't know. So for me, you know, like there's the typical, you know, meditation um, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, there's different ways to do silent meditation. There's moving meditations. And then there's, there's things that just get us in a zone, you know, where we can clear away the cobwebs of all the movement in our brain and just find stillness. You know, I would have said yes prior to the pandemic. Um, I grew up in the Unitarian Church. And we would go on youth retreats and they taught meditation. And I was really good at it. And then the pandemic hit. And it's funny that the pandemic's the one thing that threw me off my groove so much. But it's much harder to fall asleep now. And, you know, I took some stuff to help with it for a while. And I'm learning, I'm finding my way back to there. I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Life, it seems like it's always this. There's, there's something to juggle, something to consider, something to let go, something to, you know, change your perspective on. There's just a lot of it. One I think for everybody this year has just been so hard. Even like you were either home secluded from everybody or you were out in it and there was no time to relax. Mm -hmm. There was too much or not enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so personally, I'm trying to like learn how to interact with people again. Yeah. You know, we've got families at the hospital again. I used to be really good at that. <laughs> it went silent for a while. It did. <laughs> so what is a song that inspires you or songs that inspire you? Oh, you've hit my weakness. I am not a song person. You don't have to be a song person. If you don't have one, that's totally fine. I don't know. There's that little girl that sings on, uh, it's not American Idol. It's one of those pop shows. Anyway, this eight-year-old gets up and she sings Girl on Fire. Uh-huh. And I just, like, the empowerment. Okay, we're going to have to look that up and put it in the Oh, it's so the uh, podcast notes. That girl is amazing. A, the song's amazing, but B, she hits those notes and she just owns it. <laughs> That's really cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No. Okay. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for joining me today. Would you hit the subscribe button and follow along? And then would you please pause and leave a five-star review? I'd be extra grateful. It helps me tremendously. Also, would you please share this podcast with one person you know of that is looking to start a new career or looking for a side hustle or starting over? 
Also, you can follow me on Instagram at The Ruthie Podcast. I'll keep you posted there. Additionally, will you send me feedback? I'm at the grassroots of all of this and I can use your help. You can send that feedback to me on Instagram or to my email at ruthie at the ruthiepodcast.com. That's R-U-T-H-I-E at the ruthiepodcast.com. And remember to check out the Ruthie Podcast playlist on Spotify. Now, go make today great. Explore, experience, then take it all on the inside and ask, now what? Now what?